This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com. You are listening to The Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about the psycho-spiritual and psychosocial aspects of -of end-of-life care. You can find our podcast everywhere you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes and any platform you listen to the show from. And now, here are your hosts, Joe and Saul. Thank you very much for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Today, our guest is the Reverend Dr. Andrew Goodhead, a chaplain at St. Christopher's Hospice in London, England. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's good to be with you. Uh, Can you give us a little background of where you grew up? Oh, yes. Well, um, for those of you that know uh, the UK at all or or well, um, I was born in a place that everybody should know, um, which is Plymouth in Devon. Um, uh, famous for, of course, the Mayflower Steps. Uh, although, of course, uh, ultimately, one has also has to remember that the Pilgrim Fathers left from um, uh, Portsmouth and because of a uh, damage to the ships that they were in, uh, put into Plymouth, uh, repaired the ships and then left. But we seem to have claimed them as our own uh, for the, the past few hundred years. Uh, and this year, of course, is, is, is an anniversary of the sailing of the Mayflower, um, which uh, uh, has meant not much has happened. So I grew up in Plymouth um, uh, and um, I went to the Methodist church that was at the top of the road from where my I, my parents lived. Uh, my aunt and uncle went to that church with their two children, and I, with my brother, went along to the Boys Brigade, um, which I'm not sure whether you have in America, the Boys Brigade, um, uh, which is like a, a, um, a form of scouts, but different, um, and um, uh, grew up in the church, and then uh, went into the ministry when I was um, 23, uh, well, to, to start training, and then I went into circuit work uh, at 26, um, uh, so I went to college in Bristol and then out into the work at 26. Um, and I did f- just about 15 years working for the church um, in, across the country in different places before I then came to St. Christopher's in 2005. Hmm. So, so you uh, you did the circuit for via the, the Methodist Church then is how you went? Yep. Okay. Yep. Just a little clarifying for me there. Yep. And so during that time serving the church, is that when you found yourself interested in... Uh, in a in hospice chaplaincy, well, that's, that's a really interesting question because I, um, I I was at a point of a, of an appointment in South London where I was thinking, you know, what do I do now? Do I stay where I am or do I uh, look to move somewhere else? I was then a superintendent minister, um, and I don't think you got superintendents in quite the same way in America as um, we have them here in the UK. Um, but I was a superintendent minister, so I was um, uh, the lead person in a circuit. Um, and I thought, actually, I want to try to see if there are other opportunities out there um, because I was a little bit um, uh, frustrated to some extent with a lot of admin that sort of had crept into the work, you know, filling in forms, making sure this was done and that was done, rather than the things which I found most rewarding for myself, which was pastoral work or preaching and uh, and that kind of thing. Um, and so I looked around um, and by chance, and I mean by chance, although um, as a Methodist, of course, I would call this provenient grace, um, <laughs> I saw an advert in, uh, in the Guardian newspaper uh, for the role of chaplain at St. Christopher's. Um, and I thought that really looks interesting. And I, I knew about St. Christopher's. I lived not far away from it. Um, I knew about Cicely Saunders and I was aware of her work. Um, uh, and I thought, I'm going to apply and see what happens. Uh, and here I am. So it was very much that. It was never a question of deliberately thinking, I want to be in chaplaincy. Uh, but um, the advert looked very appealing and interesting. And certainly the role when I had the opportunity to, to, to go for it was, was clearly, um, I think, playing to the things that I found most uh, most spoke to me really to be able to be with people um, in uh, in in circumstances uh, which were difficult for them and were challenging, uh, but but also offered an opportunity just to offer good pastoral support uh, and sacramental support where that was right. appropriate too. Right, hmm. your journey sounds similar to my own as far as getting into uh, or finding my way into hospice chaplaincy, which has been for me for about the last. Oh gosh, 10, 12 years or something like that. It's been longer than I than I could imagine because um, I did pastoral ministry for 20 years and found myself at ends. Uh, I, 
somewhat conflicted with the church at that time. Mm. And uh, my story goes that, you know, 30-some years ago, I, I, I ended up doing some uh, volunteering for a chaplain, I mean, for a hospice. And, you know, it's like the big circle of life. All of a sudden, 30 years later, there I am working as a chaplain, which yes. I figure, as I look back at, it should have been doing all along. But that's how I see that how God works in unfamiliar ways. Mm. Yes, of course. So how long have you been a chaplain at St. Christopher's? Uh, 15 years. Um, so I've been here for 15 years. Um, and, I, and I've enjoyed every minute of it. Tell us more about Cicely Saunders. Uh, what was, uh, she's credited as the pioneer of the modern hospice movement. What was the motivation for starting St. Christopher's? Well, uh, I think I, Cicely was a very interesting person. I knew her for the last few months of her life when I first came to um, St. Christopher's. Um, uh, she was then a, a patient under our care um, and uh, was at home and then came to um, uh, to the ward because she could no longer stay at home. And it was right, having founded St. Christopher's, that she uh, concluded her life at St. Christopher's. Um, I, I, I think... Her, her background is, was interesting because she came from a certain sect of section of, of British uh, class system, sort of the upper middle classes. Her father was relatively wealthy as a land agent. She had a private education. Uh, she was uh, went to Oxford University to do uh, PP, philosophy, politics and economics before the war. And when the Second World War broke out, she decided that she wanted to do something that was more rewarding than PPE. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can think anything would be more rewarding than PPE. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, she then went to train as a nurse at St. Thomas's Hospital in central London, which was a- evacuated out of central London to other, other parts of, of the southeast of England um, and trained as a nurse. Uh, but because of a back injury, she found that she wasn't able to continue to work as a nurse. Um, and that was a real problem for her because she saw that as a calling uh, and, and an important way of helping at, at a time when people really needed needed help. Um, and uh, at that point, when she was training as a nurse, she wouldn't have described herself as a person who had a faith. Uh, but I think she was certainly a person who was seeking and, and looking. Uh, and it was in 1945 on holiday in Cornwall uh, that she came to faith. She came, became a Christian. She clearly said to God, you know, what am I to do? Uh, and um, I think at that point, having having given herself to uh, to her to her faith, because many of her friends had belief. Um, she was then looking, I think, for a cause, if you like. I, that, that sounds a rather flippant way of describing it, but she was looking for a purpose. And um, uh, in looking for that purpose, it took another two years, really, before she had any, um, two or three years before she had any opportunity to to actually sort of dis- discover what it was. And she'd moved from nursing into social work. She'd become a lady almoner, which was a social worker at the time in a hospital in central London at St. Thomas's. And it was there that she met David Tajma, the famous first person, really, the first hospice patient for her, mm. who was never in a hospice. Um, and he was a Polish Jewish refugee from Warsaw. Um, and uh, her recollection of him is that he was alone and dying at the age of 40. And he wanted to know that his life had had value, it had meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, and clearly, to that point, it it hadn't for him, or the way she describes it, it hadn't. Um, uh, and so she uh, saw him as a social worker in hospital. She broke the rules and saw him at his home, and then saw him again <laughs> when he was uh, in another hospital. Uh, and was by then seeing him as a friend, or very much more than a friend. Uh, and I, I think potentially a turning point for him was uh, when she asked him how she could help him. And he simply said, I want to know what is in your heart and in your mind. Mm. Uh, and they had a conversation about a place which could be different for people who were dying. And he left her £500 in his will to uh, be a window in your home. And there's now a window here at St. Christopher's in Sydney, which represents that, mm. uh, that, li- that gift of 1948. Uh, and, and I think that motivation then set her on a trail of having found a purpose in her faith. Um, and so she agitated as a social worker. Uh, she did some shifts as a nurse, although that was very limited because of, of her back injury. Uh, and it was one day when she was talking to um, a doctor about what she was thinking about death and dying, uh, that she was told, well, you need to train to be a doctor because doctors won't listen to you unless you are one. Uh, and she had the means to be able to go off and do that. So she trained again at St. Thomas's uh, to qualify as a doctor. Um, but of course, Cicely at that point was thinking about death and dying in a way that other people were too. So there was Florence Wald in America, 
that can't be forgotten, or and mm. later still Elizabeth Kubler Ross um, and others who were clearly giving thoughts to dying and the, and how dying could be processed and could be better um, for people uh, than it was at the time. And for Cicely, meeting David Tajma, she saw he was dying alone in pain in hospital um, or isolated uh, and, and unable to really access support that he needed, which was holistic. Even his pain control, uh, she described as having be, having to be earned um, rather than something which he could have to keep him uh, comfortable and and the best have the best quality of life. So her her motivation was very strong around meeting David and having this this conversion experience where she was then looking or hoping or seeking for a uh, for a cause and a purpose. You know, she had must have had had an enormous amount of obstacles to overcome because of her call. Uh, how did she have any support? Where did she, you know, how did she do that? Well, today I think we would describe Cicely as a networker. Um, okay. She had social networks that weren't open to other people. She came uh, from that upper middle class background where she clearly had um, uh, access to people through her family and through others that she met that, that other people might not have had. So she was able to draw around herself people who she could talk to about her vision, her picture of what a hospice could be like. Uh, and in doing that, um, she drew the right people. So it was a remarkable story of um, uh, enabling other people to capture something of what it was that she aimed to do. Uh, and in capturing that, she would then draw them into the work. So she grew together um, a board of people who were willing to support her in finding um, uh, the right place where St. Christopher's could be built, where um, uh, funds could be found, uh, where people who, who needed to sort of help her with all of the planning and other sort of legal stuff could be put together. And um, it was her brother who found the site for her here at St. Christopher's mm -hmm. in Sydenham. Um, she spent quite a lot of time in America after qualifying as a doctor so, and while she was doing her postdoctoral work around the use of morphine, um, uh, because there were people in America, as I've said, who were interested and were clearly looking at the time into how we could do best and could do better uh, um, for people who were reaching the end of their life. So she was quite a networker uh, of of uh, finding people who who could who could sort of just catch that vision, catch that picture, um, and help her uh, bring a, a vision to reality. Yeah. How much did her gender cause her to struggle? I think that's difficult to say because we don't get a, get to hear a lot of that from her uh, firsthand. I think, again, she came from a particular background where um, she was able to use her social status, her upper middle class status, her, her training as a doctor mm -hmm. and her status as a doctor to be able to advance the cause of what she wanted to do. People clearly thought that she was a bit nuts, I was, uh, wanted yeah. to go into something like Mm -hmm. like care of the dying. Um, Mary Baines, Dr. Mary Baines, who recently died here at St. Christopher's and was the first person who came to us, uh, recruited by Sicily, uh, by very, very nefarious means, um, <laughs> recognised that when she came to St. Christopher's in 1968 uh, as, a, as, a, as a hospice doctor, other other doctors were saying this is career suicide. Uh, yeah. You're not in a not in a in a in a recognised career path. There's no progression for you. Uh, there's no way that you can change from this. So uh, it was clearly that um, that this was moving into an area where where you weren't 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 able to sort of be recognised properly. So she was she had to really fight for for what she was after in terms of hospice care, and and wanting to build this understanding of hospice and end of life, not simply based on medicine, but based on on um, good nursing care, on spiritual and religious care, on social care, on emotional care, mm -hmm. um, backing that up with research and education. She really wanted to, to get out there to do something very different. She certainly sounded very strong. She was. Yes, I think that's true. Yeah, that's true. And yes. uh, b beyond preparation, which she did, uh, her timing when she came to America was spot on because the topic of death and dying was right at the fore center. That was in 1963 after the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And um, coming and beginning to give those lectures were really powerful. Yes, and she met, uh, she met people who I think had shared the same hopes and dreams around uh, end-of-life care. So she, she met Florence Wold, she met uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, she met lots of other people who were clearly very interested uh, in exploring how 
care of the dying could be better. Um, there's a there's a really good film called Hospice Pioneers or Pioneers of Hospice Care, um, in which she sits in what was then the chapel here at St Christopher's with Florence Wald, and they talk about meeting and what they got up to together and where the, what they talked about together, which is a remarkable film, and it includes some of the American pioneers, including Elizabeth, um, and some of the pi- uh, Balmont is in it, um, uh, and, and and several other people who just describe what it was like in the early days to begin uh, to think about something which was so different. Yeah, I spoke with the producer of that film. I'm looking at getting a copy of it. Uh, as the culture, uh, what was the culture of death like in England when Sicily was starting this movement? Well, I think the culture of death had changed massively in the 20th century. Uh, previous to, to the to the opening of up of the 20th century um, and the... Uh, way in which antibiotics made uh, such a huge change to the way that disease could be treated. Um, you know, penicillin, which was the first available antibiotic, meant that, that disease could be treated differently. Um, and um, uh, hospitals began to emerge in different ways. So they were no longer just cottage hospitals. Uh, and in the UK, of course, in 1948, the NHS began, which brought a disparate array of cottage hospitals and small general hospitals under the a national framework. Um, dying started to move in the early 20th century into hospital settings. So it moved mm. out of the home, it moved out yeah. of the community, it moved out of the place where it had naturally been before, where people experienced death as families and as communities. And there's a really good chapter which David Clark, who's just retired as a professor in uh, Scotland, um, wrote about called Death in Staves which recognised that at one point people in the community ha- each had a role around the death of somebody from the family to the uh, to the local carpenter to the local vicar uh, to the person who might lay somebody out to the person who might just go and tell the neighbours mm. um, and that changed in the 20th century so everybody came into hospital so that death was then seen as a complete failure uh, because it moved uh. much more towards everybody could be cured uh, and that was never the case so that's right. so I think that was the culture that she began to work in, and that's where in 1948, meeting David Tajma, dying with pain, isolated and alone in a hospital setting, as she describes it, she recognised that, that 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 needed to be different, and dying could be different. Hmm. So how's the culture now? I mean, you speak of that, and it sounds like you're saying it's been altered a little bit. Is that true? I think I think it's true that it's altered a little bit. Um, the majority of deaths in the UK are still in hospital, mm-hmm. but there is a movement that recognises people want to die at home or in care homes, which is where they might be living for the last days of their life and last months, um, and where possible that um, is enabled in the right circumstances. Uh, and hospices across the country, palliative care units based in hospitals across the country, are keen to try to enable that to happen. Um, but there's still, we are still seeing that medicine, of course, is a curative, mm-hmm. um, not a palliative. Um, right. uh, experience um, and there is a lot of um, work that goes on around uh, trials of medicines and treatments now uh, and the enrollment of people who are coming towards palliative uh, days of life into trials which may or may not do them any good or help them in any way in which they experience significant side effects or problems but because people have a natural desire they want to live and therefore they're willing to to try different things that, that might not help them. That, to some extent, that's altruism. I mm-hmm. want to help people who, might, who I will never know, but, but I can't be, but it might not help me. But also there is the wish to, to stay alive. So I think there's, there have been changes um, uh, and the um, movement around death cafes, which I know you have in the US as well as in other parts of the world and certainly in the UK, um, and uh, improved death literacy um, are, is helping slowly to enable people to think more uh, about dying death and the place of dying and death uh, than, than previously. So how easy was it for her to change that, uh, the perception of physicians in embracing uh, this palliative or hospice uh, mode of care? Because I remember reading about Florence World and how she struggled convincing physicians to embrace that. Um, yes. How, yeah, how did she work around <laughs> changing perception? She had the, she had the same. I think she had the same issues. Um, uh, Florence, of course, was a nurse uh, and a, a very um, 
uh, a very persuasive and skilled nurse and uh, Cicely went to train as a doctor because she saw that, that for her that was the way forward but as I said when Mary Baines came to St Christopher's she was told that she was committing professional suicide um, so there weren't many people who were willing to join her what did happen which is very interesting is that a number of the cohort of people that she trained with as a doctor were willing to train with her to work with her so Mary trained with her Robert Twycross trained with her um, uh, and uh, one or two others did the same. So they were willing to uh, come over uh, to help um, uh, the early hospice um, start, uh, even when it was not in itself a profession uh, or, or, or a medical um, speciality. And so I think she just plugged away and plugged away over a period of time and started to get invited to different places to speak and started to write. She was a prolific reader and writer. Um, and when she began to create what is now the Oxford textbook of uh, palliative medicine, people took seriously uh, what she was saying. And I think um, there was something around the, uh, the, the use of morphine that she was clearly able to express which showed that you know hospice care wasn't just a place where people came and 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 had a nice time. This is a place where they could actually be cared for uh, through the use of medicines um, in appropriate and proper ways, which alleviated symptoms and pain, and which enabled a good quality of life. So I think it was just it was time, uh, and it wasn't until 1985 that palliative medicine was recognised as a specialty, uh, which enabled junior doctors then to choose that as a way uh, into their career. Yeah, with that, we'll take a little break and we'll be right back. If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and can use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI Helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at nami.org. This is Sole Bam, and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Uh, Andrew, in 1967, it says that that's when uh, St. Christopher's Hospice was started. Uh, what were the, in, how did the initial years look? Oh, yes, that's very interesting. Um, well, it, we did open in 1967 uh, with a, a hospice that looks like a hospital. Um, every modern hospice now built since 1967 doesn't look like we do. Um, we're, we're built as a hospice, so we're built on five floors. Um, and uh, that was because nobody knew what a hospice might look like. Um, now, hospices, of course, are generally single story with patients' mm -hmm. rooms that look out onto a garden or they have balconies and, and that sort of thing, which we don't have. Um, but uh, the idea for Sicily uh, was that this was a place where people would be admitted and stay for a long period of time. Patients weren't admitted for short stays. Uh, the first patient was admitted who had uh, motor neuron disease. Uh, everybody thinks that uh, hospices were all about cancer, but actually that's not the case. Uh, the first patient had motor neuron disease and stayed with us for a number of a period of time. You know, patients might stay for 12 months or two years uh, until they died. Um, and um, Sicily you know, was set this up entirely as a charitable foundation. There was no money from the NHS, National Health Service. Everything came through donations, which were fundraised. So a lot of time was spent raising money. A lot of time was spent speaking to raise money, uh, speaking to promote the hospice. Um, uh, working with 55 beds at the time in four-bedded bays across the three wards that we had. Um, it was very much seen as a community of the unlike, uh, and uh, ultimately it consisted of patients on the IPU, the inpatient unit. There was an old people's wing um, called the Draper's Wing, and then there was a children's day nursery. Uh, and those communities, those three very different communities, met together in the chapel and in the dining room. And the idea for Sicily was to create a community, and uh, and that included staff and volunteers at the time. Uh, hence, this idea of a community of the unlike, um, which um, which I think meant a lot to her at that point. But it, there was a lot of of constant having to find money to keep it going and keep it going, mm. and people shared her vision. Uh, the staff that she recruited shared her religious background. Very often, uh, you know members of the faith, Christian faith communities. Um, uh, Mary Baines was a committed Christian in the, in the same way that she was. Um, uh, many of the, of the doctors that came to join her uh, did the same. And I think that was part of it at that point. It was seeing this as a, as a, as a sense of a calling and a mission 
uh-huh. um, uh, which which mattered and, and uh, I think was uh, was a way of enabling the hospice to survive if not succeed. You know, it, it was always able to to keep going because it drew people in who saw this as an important way forwards, because you were caring for people in that in that period of life when um, they needed support, which which a hospital at that point wasn't able to offer. It's really good to point that out to say that it was grounded around spirituality. That strong spiritual ethic, that's really powerful. It is, and a broad spiritual ethic. She set us up with a foundation document that uh, was clearly founded upon spiritual care and support, not necessarily upon religious care and support, because she wanted it to be open and broad and welcoming to everyone who came, who would receive what it was that they needed. Now, in 1967, the culture in the UK was uh, very much more geared towards a religious framework. Uh, we live now in, the, in, in 2020 in a different context, um, but we work towards a spiritual framework that, that seeks to meet the needs of the individual um, where they are uh, and, and, and enable them and encourage them to express what matters to them from their position, not to impose upon them something which is, not, which is foreign or alien to them. And and beyond that, uh, St. Christopher's also became a, a pioneer center for research. Uh, the did. use of morphine, I think, began there. It did. It did. That was a very early study. Um, Sicily's had um, completed work uh, before she became, before St. Christopher's opened, around the use of morphine, because when she met David Tasma, and she described him as having to earn his pain relief, which he was able to, to uh, translate to other people as well, she meant that um, he received morphine or pain relief twice a day. Uh, 12 hours apart. So he would be comfortable for a period of the day and become less and less comfortable and in pain before he got his next pain relief. And she wondered whether there were different ways of um, of offering support and pain relief, which would take that away. Uh, you know, the Brompton cocktail was beginning to come in uh, as a way of offering pain relief. And so she did some postdoctoral research at St. Joseph's Hospice, which was already in existence in East London, founded by the Sisters of Mercy, a, a, an Irish Catholic order of nuns, um, and in one or two other places, uh, to begin to look at giving a, a, a serious dose, if you like, of, of morphine. Um, uh, uh, twice a day, but then in between that, breakthrough doses, uh, which were smaller, but enabled people to be free of pain and have a better quality of life. Uh, And at the time that she was doing that, she was also uh, taking verbatim uh, accounts of their life stories. So she would speak to patients and sit with them and and hear their tale, listen to what was going on underneath the pain that was physical. Uh, So she heard about pain that was emotional and spiritual, that was social. um, And she came up then with a model of total pain, which is well known in the hospice world, um, uh, and saw that um, that pioneering research needed to be set alongside the pioneering research around the use of morphine. And when she came here, when uh, here once we opened, uh, the first use, um, research around morphine was about morphine and diamorphine, the use of those two different um, uh, 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 ways of, of giving morphine. Um, and that was very early in the um, in the life of St. Christopher's. And I think the finding was that actually there was no real difference between the two of them, if I'm right. Um, uh, but it was really important that somebody had done that research, that work, because people were, you know, wondering about: is it appropriate to use morphine? Will it, will the people come, will people get addicted to morphine by putting them on it if they're on it for a period of time? Does it does this mean we're going to create a, a, um, a society of addicts who are dying? Um, and of course, what it showed was uh, that it didn't make any difference. They didn't become addicted to it, uh, but it became very useful as tools to enable relief of pain. How did she ever overcome the stigma of that thought of you know morphine becoming addictive? I mean research. I mean it was research. I mean we still um, run into it here all the time. Yeah. It happens here, um, and of course, because because morphine, um, you know, the, the idea of it is it, it's seen in 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 common parlance or common thinking that of course you you become addicted to it. You can always become addicted because it is such an addictive drug. Um, uh, well, what's shown is that you're giving it at such quantities and to people in such need that that actually that doesn't happen. So that was right. her research. That's what she did. Mm-hmm. And so it, there is a time when uh, a doctor will have to sit with a patient to say, look, we're going to use morphine. Uh, it doesn't. It isn't addictive, but you need to use it carefully. So if we if we give you oromorph, for example, or we're offering you injections by morph by uh, of morphine in different forms, or using a syringe driver, we want you to know that the quantities we are using it and the way that we are using it, this won't happen. 
So in part, it's offering assurance and, and, and enabling people to recognize what morphine can do and what its purpose is. Well, it's been interesting to, in my experience that we don't find our, our medical director will, you know, of course, support, but it's mostly the nurses and the, the rest of us when we come and visit a patient mm. and the family is discussing the idea of what can we do to control the pain. And, you know, my initial response has always been morphine. Yes. And I, uh, the resistance at times is, is palatable. I mean, it's just there. And you try to explaining to them the, the, the science behind it and all that, it makes it very difficult for people to really, yeah, they're going to get addicted. They're going to get addicted. You know, I want to, they're going to make it, they're going to get snowed. They're not going to be able to talk to me. Hmm. And, yeah. and, and yeah. those things that you try to, you know, it's more or less like, we'll prove it to you, but you can't do that. Yes. Yes. And I think that's, that's in part about, you know, and people having trust in you that you will, you'll, you'll give the right dosage or you'll titrate dosage to make sure that someone is comfortable, but not, and not drowsy or, uh, uh, or comfortable without pain recognizes that actually you can, you can enable their quality of life to improve uh, yes. because, because they're free from pain. You know, yep. it, it is in part just enabling people to understand um, what more, you know what other drugs that are now used because of course it's a much bigger raft of drugs that are available um, mm -hmm. um, for symptom control and pain relief um, that, uh, and explain carefully what the uh, opportunity to use them means for the patient in terms of the quality of their life yeah as I'm listening to you talk and I'm and I can also imagine the other chaplains around the world listening to you um, just the history and the legacy of St. Christopher's how has that impacted your work as a chaplain? Um, I think I think people look to St. Christopher's um, uh, as a uh, uh, as as a leader, which is which is right that we should be because you know we're the first modern hospice and we want to maintain our place at the forefront of thinking and education, training and research. Um, uh, we really need to to, to hold that. Um, uh, so for us, I think as an organization overall, uh, we are very keen to to build links with other palliative and end-of-life organizations to enable them to, to work with us and for us to work with them, to offer opportunities to, uh, to, uh, to, for, for research and training and education and to come and see us when times are more normal um, uh, and to run courses and things which enable places which are resource poor or where um, the access to end-of-life care and palliative care isn't as great to come and learn from us, but then to build their model as they need to build their model, not to build it on the basis of a St. Christopher's model. So what is required of you as a chaplain there to also do research? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's part of my job because I enjoy research uh, and uh, and uh, so I but I'm and I'm very keen on um, uh, remembrance and memorialization uh, it's a particular interest that I have so I've done some research around how people remember their dead uh, bereaved relatives remember those that have died uh, and uh, the means in which hospices can offer um, that and I think for me that's really important um, uh, I've done work around how we can engage with um, chapl with community clergy and faith leaders um, to enable them to uh, have confidence in supporting people at the end of life who are in their own home and members of their congregation so that the clergy aren't just dealing with the dead, but are dealing with those who are dying, enabling them to have good pastoral conversations to talk about what matters at the end of life from a religious and spiritual perspective. Yeah, I felt that to be a, a significant uh avenue for helping the the local clergy i mean they mm. uh i've run into the same situation which i'm sure you have where they're kind of lost they don't yeah. know they don't know what to do and there's a lot of fear with it yeah. and uh try to educate them and that you know they they just need to be there like they they're supposed to yeah, absolutely, and I think this is this is rather a pejorative way of saying it, but there's such an emphasis within the church, certainly in the UK, around you know the next generation, that the generation that are dying, uh, who are the elderly, who cease going to church and more or less drop off the edge, um, uh, then 
lose their pastoral support, which then when they need it most around death, dying and, uh, and bereavement. Uh, and so my encouragement is always to find ways to uh, enable clergy to see the the people that are dying at that age group, the, old, the older age, um, uh, as an important part of their community who deserve pastoral care. But of course, you know, there is then the group within the church who may be younger who are dying, and and sometimes supporting those is very difficult. So yep. hospice chaplaincy can help clergy in the community to um, uh, to be supportive of a a um, congregation member who is younger, because congregations find it very hard. It, it's uh, it's it's abnormal. It's not right that this should happen to X mm-hmm. or Y. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually one needs to say, well, this is happening. Therefore we need to we need to to, to offer the right pastoral response to it um, and put it into a context of faith and belief. Well that would take a little break and we'll be right back. Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. This is Saleh Bam, and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Uh, Andrew, uh, since the starting of St. Christopher's, how has the philosophy of care there evolved over the years? I think our basic philosophy of care has not changed at all, and that's to see um, the patient as a person um, and to develop as far as possible an individualised care for that person. Uh, No two patients are the same, uh, and no two patients should ever just be treated the same way. Um, And if we take uh, Cicely's model of total pain into account, then it's impossible to treat two people in the same way because people respond to their circumstances differently. And, um, you know, I I can think of, of people that I've met who, uh, you know, who 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 just come into into our, under our care, um, uh, who you could never just say, well, you, this is what you get from us. We give you this, we give you that, uh, because their their circumstances, their background, and their needs are very different. Um, and the same is true for their family members. So our philosophy of care hasn't changed. It's built on good nursing care, uh, good medical care, good supportive care through social work, through spiritual care, through um, emotional support and other things, um, uh, backed up and allied with research and education to others. So what we want to ensure for every patient who comes to us is that the the process of clerking, you know, when you meet somebody for the first time and ask what's important to you now, you take notice of that Mm -hmm. um, so that you're actually working to the person's aspirations and hopes for the next period of time. You're not simply saying, well, you're a patient under our care. Now, this is what you get. This is a blanket offer and there's nothing else. Um, And that's meant, I think, we've done some very interesting work, you know, with a uh, some charities that offer um, opportunities for younger patients to have days out or particular experiences. You know, we've got in touch with them and they've given them certain things which would never normally um, happen or for a patient who wants to die at home but and is very unwell. Um, we've enabled that to happen by putting the right package of care in place. Um, and for those who um, have very few people around them, the philosophy has always existed that you will not die alone. So we do have nurses here who will sit with somebody in those dying uh, moments. Um, and um, and that matters uh, because I think what Cicely saw to be the fundamental um, philosophy is the person in front of you is important. And so going right back again to David Tajma, his life mattered to her. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and if his life mattered, every life matters uh, when it's coming to its end. And so does their family. And we do our best to support the family uh, in whatever way is possible with children and with adults in, in the family as appropriate. And then into bereavement. So our philosophy has been for a lot, for many, many years, uh, initially working with Colin Murray-Parks, who is a psychiatrist, but um, has been engaged with uh, bereavement work since the 50s, uh, working with Cruz, a bereavement service, and then with us, you know, developing a bereavement service for us uh, that enables people to be supported beyond um, the experience of, of the death of someone close to them uh, so that their bereavement outcomes are better. 
And our philosophy of care ends essentially um, uh, in some ways when a patient dies and when you might leave our bereavement service. Um, but we offer remembrance services every year and people come in for those. We have ways in which you can come to the building to remember someone who's died. Um, you know, our fundraising see their work not just as getting funds in for the hospice, but as a way of connecting with our community. Our philosophy is very much based on the people we serve. How do you as a team able to communicate with each other. Do you have team meetings? Do you do those regularly? Yes, they're really important. So um, uh, multidisciplinary meetings or multidisciplinary team meetings um, happen once a week in a formal way um, when uh, a number of patients are discussed um, uh, in teams. So we have both community teams and ward-based teams. And then, of course, the individual teams like social work or welfare or whatever will have their own team meetings sort of separate and, sp and uh, specific to them. But we do have um, weekly um, multi-professional meetings to ensure that we are um, looking at every patient, thinking about their needs, thinking about those who are new on the, on the books, um, who have come to us has um, been referred, uh, looking always to um, think about patients who we've got in care homes or those who are under our frailty um, uh, work and uh, uh, Bromley uh, in Bromley. You know, so a number of different things, but those meetings are very important. They're, they're a really important part of our work. But we also have, um, in addition to meetings where we discuss the patients, meetings where we come together for education. We also have um, a Wednesday learning forum because education for us is equally important as teams as meeting together to discuss patients. Um, and in that, we have opportunity to think about uh, advances in care or uh, ways in which um, our support is offered to patients and family members differently uh, or uh, with novel uh, ideas for the future. Um, uh, and many of our staff are involved and engaged with with research or mm. with education in different ways uh, and we're really keen in terms of um, how we uh, are able to support patients um, to make sure that we are up to date and we are current and we are um, aware of whatever is, is is new on the block as it were so that um, uh, our multidisciplinary meetings are then informed by what we learn in other places and bring to those meetings. So your time is divided between doing research and patient care, is it? My time predominantly will be based towards patient support and um, uh, and uh, you know the sort of the things that go with governance, which I have to do as part of my role. Um, I do research on top of, if you like, other things. So that's an addition um, to my work um, overall. But it's a, it's a part of the role which I enjoy because it's uh, uh, you know you start off with a question or you start off with a something you want to investigate uh, and just over time begin to see what uh, what emerges. So as, as a pioneer of the hospice movement, uh, how has uh, St. Christopher's evolved to remain current year after year? Well, that's a really good question because it, it's important that um, one doesn't become stale or stagnant. stagnant. And it's easy for organisations to do that. Uh, um, the idea of, um, uh, of the charismatic leader, if, if, you know, if you follow Max Weber's um, uh, uh, sort of um, thesis, uh, that's then followed by routinization. Mm -hmm. It's very easy to get to a stage where you're complacent or where you're not doing things new, where you're not looking for the ways in which you can advance. And for us, it's been a constant process of learning and education through through research, through practice, and our big um, uh, emphasis is on practice because it's patients that we care for. So we are asked very often um, uh, through our research group to uh, allow um, researchers to work here, and, and we're very keen on that, but we do it on the basis that we want to know what your results are. We don't just sort of say, yes, this is an academic thing, off you go. Mm. Um, we have uh, recently just finished building, and we're just about to take um, uh, ownership of a new education centre, which is called St. Christopher's Care, the centre for the um, uh, for um, uh, uh, education, learning, training uh, into the future. Um, and St. Christopher's Care is, of course, a real opportunity for us to uh, reach broad communities, ranging from the general public, uh, who might just want to know something about um, what it means to be resilient, uh, to people who come as experienced medics or nurses who want to know something new about pain control, uh, or a social worker who wants to hear about the social model of, of, uh, of dying. And um, we've used the experiences of coronavirus, which of course has been devastating in many ways, um, to 
learn about the use of Zoom and Microsoft Teams and other ways of engaging and meeting patients uh, and doing training in acro- across the world, frankly, hmm. um, in ways that we were never doing before. Everything we thought had to be face-to-face. Um, so people would come to us, always come to us. And what we've discovered, of course, is that we can do training that is face-to-face because that matters. The interaction that we have together matters. But equally, we can create some very good training opportunities, which are world-class to enable places which otherwise would never afford to come to St. Christopher's to um, engage with us in education and training and learn together. So I think the the way that we're continuing to evolve uh, uh, currency um, is is partly through St. Christopher's Care, the Centre for Awareness and Response to End-of-Life Care. But of course, we're also doing that in terms of our patient and family support. recognizing that, uh, um, you know, how do we enable people to, to stay at home? What are, the, what, are the, what are the professions that we need to engage with and support and educate to um, make sure that that can happen? How do we make district nurses confident enough to do their work? One of the questions that we've been asking is, uh, sits around um, uh, family members who might be able to give injectable uh, drugs uh, at the end of life. And how do we do that so that people have confidence to do it? How is it right what what would be the right circumstances um so, and we know that lots of carers want to be much more involved with the person they they care for than they are able to at the moment because professionals come in and take over their care and so someone who's been involved for a long long time suddenly becomes a spare wheel uh, and they're saying to us, we want not to be a spare wheel. Mm. We want to be actively engaged and involved uh-huh. with this. Uh-huh. So we're finding ways of of, um, uh, of of skilling up carers. We want to be really engaged with our community um, and to build community action to recognise that um, if unless we build resilient communities around us, we're never going to get people who are willing and able to talk about death, dying and loss uh, and support people who are dying at home that are members of, of their community. They might be a friend, they might be a neighbor, they don't have to be a family member, but they just have the ability through training and through education and support to offer some support to somebody else. Um, so, and that matters hugely. Yes, Andrew. Uh, the, the question I have is, you know, in the States, we have a, a program called uh, Clinical Pastoral Education. It's a yes. CPE program. Do you have something similar there for uh, clergy who uh, need some uh, chaplain training? It does exist. CPE does exist, um, clinical pastoral education. It's not widely known as it is in America. It exists, I think, more uh, um, currently in Ireland, um, but it's certainly around. Uh, but so the pastoral education for clergy and chaplains is really important. So getting clergy who are moving to chaplaincy, faith leaders who move into chaplaincy, onto training courses and educational courses is absolutely vital to give them a broad understanding of pastoral care and spiritual support based around some of the other aspects of um, end-of-life care, which is medicine, nursing, social support, mm-hmm. emotional support. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a broad understanding that we work together in hospice. Um, we're not working in silos, but we're working together to create um, uh, a holistic care and support for people. Interesting you brought that topic up just now, that we're not Lone Rangers. We're, yes. as a team, uh, always thought that was implied, but that still intends to sound like it's somewhat of an issue for those who offer care to those who are dying. It can be for some. I think... One of the things that draws people to the clergy is that um, they have the opportunity to be lone rangers. Um, you can absolutely mm-hmm, do your mm-hmm, own thing, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and that's something which which whether it's built into a, to theological training, I'm I'm not sure, but it's sort of there, perhaps in the background, and you just um, uh, by osmosis sort of <laughs> come to believe it or, or practice that. Uh, well, in hospice in particular, that's not possible. You cannot be a lone ranger. Mm-hmm. You have to work with others. You have to be able to say and explain and and, and uh, um, give a, an account for why you are present in this meeting. I make a difference by my presence here because, um, you know, you have to be able to offer an ap- apologetic for why chaplaincy matters. Mm-hmm. Um, and that means you can't work alone. You have to be able to say, I worked with this doctor and we did this, or I did this with this social worker. I took the lead on this, uh, but recognize that you do work together so that the overall uh, care of a patient and, and their family is improved um, and is holistic. 
initially when St. Christopher started, uh, all the patients were in one facility. What is the percentage now with the patients who stay home and those who are in the facility? Okay, so you're right. When we began, we had the hospice and nothing else. Um, So we had 55 beds. Uh, Mary Baines, Dr. Mary Baines, as I mentioned earlier, um, was invited by Cicely Saunders to come and look around. Um, She was a general practitioner in the area. She was local to Bromley, which is where we're based. And Mary Baines had trained with Cicely and they got back into contact because um, Cicely did a radio appeal for funds. Mary sent three pounds in for uh, to help support the, the the building of the hospice. And Cicely got in contact with her after that to say, why don't you come and look around? As Mary described it, this was a backdoor's way of getting her to come and work here. Um, <laughs> and so actually she did. She stayed for the rest of her career, pretty mm. much for a full-time career. Um, so at that time, it was entirely um, hospice-based. Mary, along with two or three others, was then asked to begin a home care service Uh, following on from the experience of a patient who had come into the ward, who had been well supported through the use of um, medications to be free from pain and have good uh, symptom control. At home, that started to fall apart, and she'd had poorer pain control and poorer uh, uh, support because she wasn't able to access the medication that she needed. And she then became too afraid to stay at home. She she came in and wouldn't then go home again. But it was recognised that people wanted to be at home. So we started a home care service in 1968, um, and that then burgeoned um, uh, to today. So we have 36 beds open at the moment, which is a reduction from our normal number because of coronavirus. Um, But on our books today, we have 1,300 patients. So you can imagine that Mm. most of our patients are at home or in care homes. What are your final thoughts? Well, I think just to say to any hospice chaplain that's out there, it it is to recognise the value of what you do um, and the importance of what you do with other people. Uh, Not to see yourself as, again, as we described just a second ago, a sole trader um, uh, or a lone ranger, but actually that you, you work with other people to improve the outcomes of people who are dying, to enable them to have the death very often that they want, which is peaceful in the place that they want it to have, which might be home or a hospital or a hospice, and then to enable people in bereavement to have the best outcome from bereavement. Uh, That, you know, for, for people who have a complex experience of a death or family deaths, we can help them as an overall organization together to um, really um, have space and time to work through that bereavement, but also beyond the formal work of bereavement services to offer spaces and places and times when we are enabling and allowing people to remember in societies which do not want people to engage with their bereavement or grief. Uh, And we have a role within that to do that. Thank you very much. That's a wonderful lead into another time together, especially thank talking about much. talking about the bereavement issue. Very yeah, much thank you. So. It's been good to talk to you. Thank you so much, Andrew. Nice to meet you. And you. Thank you very much. All right. We'll be in touch. Thank you. Bye-bye now. Bye. That was the Reverend Dr. Andrew Goodhead, the chaplain at St. Christopher's Hospice in England. Thank you for listening. This podcast was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting Studio in Joliet, Illinois. Audio Hive Podcasting is a studio dedicated to podcast recording, editing, and production. For more information, you can find us at audiohivepodcasting.com. 